Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And um, as I mentioned last week, we're going to get down in the gutter today. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what I mean when we get there. But last week, we covered really the the essential theme of the entire book of Romans. And I'm going to move this back just because I feel like someone's creeping up on me. <laughs> we, we talked about the central theme of Romans, which is, which is righteousness. Uh, that's the central theme. Let's, let's not lose the big picture as we study details. And if you recall, Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the saints in Rome for three reasons. One, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel provides a righteousness that you and I need. And then third, the gospel prevents the wrath of God from falling on you and I. We saw that in verses 16 through 18. And that's really the summary of, of the book, if you will. You need righteousness. God can provide it. How do you get it? That's the deal. And then once you get it, once you get that standing in righteousness, how do you live a righteous life? That's the book of Romans. That's the entire book summed up really simply. But you know, as powerful as the gospel is, it cannot save a man until he sees his need for it. That's, that's the problem. It's powerful to say, but man has got to see their need for it. And so we're about to embark on a section where Paul is going to bring the entire world into God's courtroom. Every single one of us, man, woman, and child is going to be represented in the next three chapters as we embark in being in God's courtroom. And what we're going to find at the end, um, spoiler alert, but I'm just giving it away today. Just giving away the spoil. Everyone's guilty. That's where he's going to end up, but he's going to take great pains to, to prove that point. And you may not see yourself in this first section uh, this morning as the immoral sinner. But many of us who, who have been saved, who have put our faith in Christ, we can relate to this section because this represented our lives to some level before we got saved. I know that this would represent a portion of my life where you could describe me as an immoral sinner. And so other people can relate. Now, the problem with the immoral sinner um, is when moral sinners who think that they're better than the immoral sinners because they don't get drunk and they don't you know, smoke and, and use drugs and because they don't commit adultery, they think that they're better than the immoral sinner. And they actually have more of a problem understanding their need for righteousness because they got a little bit in their thinking. And then it, it gets even worse because moral sinners sometimes then slip off into religion And boy, that's the death now is when you begin to think of yourself as religious and good and reaching God through your own efforts, you're farther away from the truth than if you were, you know, rotten in a gutter overnight. That person has shorter distance to go to realize that they need God's righteousness. And so as we think about that this morning, I'd like to bring out this um, illustration, if you will. And you might be familiar with this verse, Matthew 7, 13, where Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. And you'll notice that this road is broad, but it's got three lanes. And we're going to look as we get into Romans chapter one and get through the middle part of chapter three. We're actually going to take a look at the three lanes on this broad road to hell. And this morning, um, we're going to start the section on the immoral sinner. This would be the person that you know, as you look at them, you just, you automatically judge and say, oh yeah, that person's going to hell. They're really bad. You know, they, serial killers, 
would fall into this category. Child molesters would fall in this category. Drunks would fall in this category. You know, the, the quote unquote, the really bad sins that we think of when we think of an immoral person who's a poster boy or poster girl for going to hell, that would be the immoral sinner. But you know, that's only one lane on this broad road to hell. We're going to look at two other lanes as we study through the book of Romans. As we get into the first part of chapter two, we're going to look at the moral center. And I remember an old funny story of, of my, my grandpa Clark, who used to smoke uh, and drink, and, and he would spend all of his money that he made on the railroad on these two things. To the, to the detriment of his 11 children. They had 11 children. My father is one of 11. And um, he got, uh, later in life, he got lung cancer. And, and then he became an out, outspoken critic of smoking. And that's exactly what the moral sinner does. They, they've engaged in some of these sins, but they think they're better than somebody else because now they don't do those things. So this might be somebody who's made it successfully through the 12-step AA program and now thinks alcohol is the worst sin. And, well, I don't do that anymore. I've improved. I gained righteousness. And so all they've done, though, on the broad road to hell is shifted lanes. They're, they're still heading to the same place. And then we see finally, and as I mentioned, the religious center, we'll pick that up at the end of Romans two. This might be a moral center who thinks that they're doing better and they're going to change lanes and become religious. And now they're going to add church attendance to their schedule. Now it's not just going to be, you know, Christmas uh, Eve and and Easter, man, buddy, they're going to start coming out four times a year. You know, they're going to kind of pick up this religious effort because they're going to build up this righteousness that they think that they need to go to heaven. The problem is, is that road, no matter what lane you're on, heads to hell. That's what we're going to find at the book of Romans is because Paul's going to get to the end of the section. It says, all of you are guilty. All of us are guilty. There's only one way off that road, and it's the gospel. And you've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the exit off of the road that leads to hell. But many people live life switching lanes, thinking that that's going to get them there. And we're going to find out from this section in Romans that you don't get there. Now, as we, as we start off in verse 19, I told you I was going to find a picture to represent suppressing truth. Now I couldn't find an older brother sitting on a younger brother, but I found this dog sitting on the cat. Amen. I'm a dog lover. As you can tell, I didn't find one. But, you know, this perfectly represents what we see in verse 18. Let's, let's read verse 18 to kind of jump into our passage this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, as we looked at that word last week, this word suppress means to hold down. Okay, notice that it doesn't imply ignorance. It implies that they know the truth, but they're actively holding it down. They're actively suppressing the truth. And this is true of the immoral sinner. And you're going to see that as a result of suppression of truth that they know, and the Bible doesn't assume, well, maybe some people don't know. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. No, the Bible is going to emphatically say everybody knows. You mean the Hottentot tribe in Africa? Yeah, everybody knows. That's what the Bible says. It's real simple when you just take the Bible at face value. You don't get into these speculations of do they know. What we find is that people know certain things, that God has given that knowledge to every person that's ever lived, and yet many people hold or suppress the truth down, and they do it 
in unrighteousness. And so let's move on to verse 19. Our knowable God. Because, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And so we see that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And so in this verse, we are seeing that they're clearly suppressing or holding down truth because God is noble for two reasons. We pick that up right there in verse 19. The first reason is this. It's manifest in them. Okay, there's something internally that's been made clear to every man, woman, and child that's ever lived. And I, and I believe that God does this to be a man's conscience um, and his heart that God exists. You know, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. There's a reason that mankind all over the, the world, all over the universe, all throughout time has tried to devise ways to get to a God, the God, multiple gods. There's something in them that's been placed there by the creator that lets them know there's something bigger than themselves. Now, people can deny it. They can say, well, I'm an agnostic. I'm atheist. The point is, we, we got the backstory here. You can't fool us. That, you may be confused, but we know the backstory is this. It's been manifested in them, and they're suppressing the truth. That's the truth of the nature. And so, and so when you're talking to an atheist, go into that with a, with a mindset that, no, they're just blowing smoke at you. This is really the truth. God has made himself noble because of what he's manifest in them. There's an internal manifestation, if you will, that God has put into every person. But we also see the second reason there in verse 19, for God has shown it to them. And so we have an internal manifestation. We've got an external manifestation, something that God is giving everybody to see and and experience and know so that they can know that God is who he says he is. Specifically, as we look in Romans, not only that, but that this God is able to reveal his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, that there is a righteousness needed based upon the standard of this creator, God, that he has made himself noble. And so the question becomes, God is clearly seen by men, but how, how is he clearly seen by men? Well, look at verse 20 as he, as he builds on that point. Um, For verse 19, for God has shown it to them. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, are without excuse. And see, you don't have to sit into a theology class at Dallas Seminary or Florida Bible College or any other university that teaches the word of God to understand God's eternal power and Godhead. You don't have to sit in a, in a theology class to know that because God has shown it to us via his creation. And not only has he shown it to us via creation, but we understand some of his invisible attributes, things that you would think that you'd have to read a book about, but we can just see because when we look at creation, we see a creator. Just like when we look at this building, I know there was an architect. You know, I, I have to prove, would I have to prove that to somebody? There was a builder of this building. Am I saying anything that is a shocking statement? No. Why do we know there was an architect? Why do we know there was a builder? Because there's a building here. I mean, hate to be captain obvious on that, but we don't question those types of things. I know there's, that's a chair. And I know there was a place somewhere, hopefully in America 
that made that chair, right? But, I, but you don't have, I don't have to prove that to you. To prove the existence of somebody who made the chair, I just point to the chair and say, that's, that's a chair. Just like I don't find a, a watch out in the middle of the woods uh, in North Georgia up on a mountain and say, wow, look how this watch evolved over the last two million years. I'd say someone dropped their watch. And cool for me. I'm going to tell you, you know, I need a watch. But this is, this is the point here. That God has shown us through creation. This word clearly seen that we find in verse 20 means to look down upon from a higher place. And then notice this, to see or know clearly and with perspective. That means that, and we're going to see, he's going to say that nobody has an excuse. That means that when we see creation, we see it with perspective. We see it with an understanding that God exists, that he is who he says he is. We see it. It's clearly seen. It comes into focus via creation. And again, how does one clearly see? Simply by looking at the things that are made. We might call this the Bible of nature. And, um, you know, I could go, I, I started like researching stuff on the internet. That's, that's a dangerous thing, thing when you don't have unlimited time. You know that. It's just, you, you can get lost. Let me just read a couple of things that we can see in our creation that, that just testify to a creator. Um, let's start with the human body. Did you know that um, the human body has millions of tiny blood cells that carry food and oxygen to every part of the body through a network? Now, listen to this, of some 60,000 miles of arteries, veins, and minuscule capillaries. That's in your body. 60,000 miles? That's incredible. I mean, that's just incredible. Listen to this about the human eye. The human eye can distinguish 10 million colors. Now, if you're colorblind, we just hope you can get green and red right. That would be a good start. But, but the human eye can distinguish 10 million, color, 10 million colors. Now, check this out. Women sometimes can have a genetic mutation allowing them, allowing them to see millions of more colors. That's pretty cool. That's why guys, when your wife says, what color is this? And you say red, she's like, no, it's not. And she's got another name. She sees it. She may have that genetic mutation. You might have a very special wife. But that's things that the eye can do. Now, now check this out about the eye. It possesses 130 million light-sensitive rods and cones that can convert light, or that convert light, into chemical impulses These signals travel at a rate of 1 billion per second to the brain. So when you take it in, it travels to your brain and and you see. I mean, this is God's creation. This is is how we can know that God exists. Now, I'll take you to the animal world. Many people don't like beavers, and I apologize if you don't, but beavers are really incredible animals the way God designed them. Did you know he designed beavers with built-in goggles? You know... My kids can't even go in the swimming pool without goggles. They won't even swim unless you got goggles to keep the water out of their eyes. You know that they've got eyelids that are transparent. They, sh- they shut their eyelids when they go underwater, and it's just like having clear goggles. That's, that's how God made the beaver. I mean, it's just incredible stuff. It, this, is, this is blows you away. Now, now, they can swim underwater for a long time. It's because of the way God made their lungs. But they're not, they're not like fish. They can't live underwater. They've got to come up for air. But listen to this. Uh, in the winter, to retrieve stored food, when ice covers the pond, the beaver 
needs to chew the sticks underwater. He's got to go under and get and get his food. They they can do this without water entering their mouths because they have a firm mouth flap between their front incisors and their rear molar teeth, which are set considerably further back. I mean, is it any wonder? I mean, we can clearly see that God exists through nature. Now, I just got to share this one. This is just really cool. I, I think the point has been made, but I, and, and we could go on forever. I mean, we could just sit up here and read stuff like this all day long for years about how incredible the God of creation is and how you just simply look at what he's made and say, oh yeah, he's real. He's the real deal. But look at, listen to this. This is, this is a bird that they, they call the incubator bird. And, and kids are like this. You know, how you, you know how chickens, most birds sit on their eggs, right, to incubate them and keep them warm. This bird doesn't. This, this is an incredible story. I'm going to try to fly through this because there's just so many incredible things here. They don't sit on their, their eggs. They don't use body heat. In fact, the mother legs the eggs, and then she darts out of town. She's gone. Mom's gone. Dad comes in behind the mom and begins to pile up great heaps of debris, which serves as incubators. And um, it's like a fermenting compost that this dad puts together over these eggs. And they found some piles um, of, a, of a certain species of scrub fowl where he's actually built a mound 20 feet high by, by 50 feet wide. I mean, and they just know how to do this. And then when the, when the eggs hatch, guess what the babies have to do? They have to crawl their way through the dirt to get to air. They got three days to do it. And I'm telling you, 20 feet, and you hit the wrong way once, man, you're probably not going to make it. So they kind of know which direction to go too to get air. Now, here's, here's the crazy thing. These are the things, again, as we look at creation, you just got to know there's a God. I mean, this is incredible. So it, it gets even better because the male begins to perform his God-given job of managing the incubation of the deeply buried eggs. But he doesn't just put a pile on top and then wait nine months. I'm just waiting for him to hatch. No, he has to keep, in order to keep the chicks uh, alive in their eggs, he has to keep a precise temperature of 91 degrees Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit for those eggs. And you know, scientists still don't know how he does it. They don't know if it's his beak that's got a boom, you know, temperature scale. They don't know if it's his tongue he throws in there and kind of reads what's going on. But when he determines that the temperature is about to get off, he, he voraciously rips away dirt to expose it to the sun or he packs more dirt on to keep that temperature at 91 degrees. And then on top of that, he's got to keep it at 99.5% humidity in there. And he knows how to do it. I mean, that's a, that's a sermon in and of itself. That's just creation. That's not what we've got here in special revelation that tells us even more about this incredible God. But this is what Paul is talking about here. When we look at uh, the sinner who is suppressing this truth, these are the facts presented to them or they see it in nature. They say, wow, how does that tree take my carbon dioxide and then flip it inside? And I'm just giving the layman version here. Carbon dioxide, flip it inside and spit out oxygen for me to breathe. How does that happen? It's because there's a creator that designed it to be that way. And so we see that Paul is just basically stating the fact. And not only that, can we clearly see, but 
notice that the next phrase says being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they're without excuse. And so we see clearly, but we also understand, and there's an internal element um, also to this. This word being understood means to perceive with thought coming into consciousness as distinct from the perception of senses. What does that mean? Well, in other words, we have an internal understanding. Not only do we see things, but internally we know those things to be true in terms of what they are revealing. There's no question about it in the mind of Paul. He doesn't even allow for somebody to say, oh, well, I've never heard of that. That's, That's not a defense. That, how many people have tried that with a police officer? Boy, I talk about speeding a lot, don't I? I just don't know why that comes up in my mind. But, it, but and I keep meaning to say, hey, Ross, don't follow me out of the parking lot, you know, because I don't want to get in trouble. But, but you know, when you, when you get caught for speeding, try telling the officer, oh, I didn't know what the speed limit was. It'd probably make him write you a ticket more. Ign- ignorance of the law, ignorance of truth that you have. And in this case, Every person's got this knowledge of God because of what he's revealed in them and what he's revealed to them. Ignorance is no excuse. And so there's this internal understanding of really some deep theological truth. Who God is, his invisible attributes, his Godhead, naturally understood by mankind. And then we see that this will agree with what we see and perceive with our senses. And so that kind of goes with the clearly uh, seen aspect before. And then at the end of verse 20, we see that nobody has an excuse. Nobody has an excuse. And why is that? And we'll go to verse 21. Because although they knew God, and let's stop right there, because they knew God. Paul, again, Paul doesn't make any kind of exception for anybody saying, oh, I didn't know. No, you know, my friend. We, we know it's very clear that we know God. And not only, uh, what's, what's interesting about that word is not only is it, uh, the word no, but it's a special word in the Greek. No, they've got a couple of words you can use there, but this no means that not only do you know intuitively, which we've already seen, Paul said, because it's been revealed in them and shown to them. This word is a word that means to come to know. So not only do you, do you know it instinctively, internally by what you see, but you also come to know that this is true as you live life is really the concept. So they, they knew God. They had this coming to God knowledge, if you will, um, even as they live their life. And so again, he doesn't make any exception. He assumes it's true. There's an internal and external manifestation of the proof of God. And because they have a knowledge of God, guess what? They're held accountable. They're held accountable for pushing this truth down, for suppressing the truth. And see, this is the problem for the immoral sinner. They cannot say we can just live life any way we want because there's no creator that exists who's going to hold us accountable for our actions. The immoral sinner needs to understand they know God. They've been given everything they need to know about God. And one day that creator God is going to hold them accountable and he's going to judge them and in true righteousness. And the problem is, and as we're going to see at the end of this section, nobody's righteous. Again, that's the whole point of this section for man to see the need for the gospel. They've got to see their need for the righteousness of God. They've got to see, they don't have what it takes. And that's 
what Paul is in the process of showing. Now, as we get into the second part of verse 21, we're going to see really six responses by the immoral sinner to their knowledge of God. Again, Paul says they knew God. Based on that knowledge, though, how do they respond to it? Well, we've already seen that they suppress the truth. I think that's the general description. But the first thing we see at the end of verse 21 is that they did not glorify him as God. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And so in their thinking, having a knowledge of God, um, they didn't recognize him. They didn't honor him as such. They didn't esteem him with dignity. They, you might want to say they disrespected him, you know, for, well, I'll say the younger generation, probably my generation when I was young, we'd say we dissed, you know, he was dissed. We dissed him. We just didn't give him any kind of credence, any kind of respect. And so we see that even though they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. Verse 21. Look at that next phrase, nor were thankful. And so they knew God, they had a knowledge of a divine creator, but they weren't grateful or willing to give thanks to him. You know, we see this, um, I mean, played out in human history where uh, people wake up every morning cursing the very God that gave them the breath to curse them. This is the kind of thing, it's just not recognizing what we have from this creator God on a daily basis that gives air the ability to flow through our lungs, gives all of our body organs, the the right way to function on a daily basis when we're healthy. And yet, even though they knew this God, they weren't thankful. Then we see uh, again in verse 21, um, that they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so they had a knowledge of the divine creator, but their thoughts about life and thoughts about origins and thoughts about the world became vain, worthless. And then what we're going to see is that this really canceled out the knowledge of God they had. And what's interesting about these two phrases here, became futile and foolish hearts were darkened. Both of those phrases are in the passive voice. In other words, they didn't make themselves futile. This futility was acted upon them. Why? Because of the suppression of truth. As people hold down truth, what's going to happen is their thoughts are going to become more and more futile. That's why the leading proponent of evolution today, when trying to give an explanation of how life was created, says there were millions of crystals that came together, maybe dropped off by an alien life form. Wow, what an illustration for a futile thought. What an illustration for having your heart darkened. Because... The, the possibility that's a creator is rejected in that thinking. And so this is the best that people can come up with, with the origin of life. You know, they began to actually believe there's no God and see when there's no God, there's no accountability for your actions. See, that's, that's really what the immoral sinner loves. They like lack of accountability for their actions. They, they have faith and you know what their faith is in that. There's not going to be a God who's going to judge them in righteousness on judgment day that, and for some of them, that there's not even a God, that there's nothing waiting for them after they, they die. And then all, you know, dogs and good people go to heaven. And that's, that's what they're hoping in. That's what their faith is in. That's what their trust is in. They might not verbalize it that way, but that's what they want. They begin to believe because they've rejected and suppressed the truth. They actually begin to convince themselves that there's no God and no accountability for their actions. 
And then we also said that their hearts were darkened. Again, that's a passive voice. It's a result of suppressing the truth. And so now we've seen kind of some uh, reactions that have happened to them. But then they go on the offensive. They start to assert things about themselves as they suppress truth. They start to begin to assert and think certain ways about themselves. And we see this in verse 22, which says this, professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And you know, this word professing means that they just verbally asserted, verbally, just confidently asserted that they had true wisdom in these areas, that they were the the end all, that they were the master of their faith, that they could determine their destiny as it were. And, And it all came out of the fact that they were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They began to assert that they're wise. By holding down the truth, they asserted that their own wisdom, they asserted their own wisdom, and this actually caused them to become fools. Have you ever been in a room with somebody that thought they knew everything. Those kind of people are kind of fun to be around for a little bit because they're, they're kind of entertaining in some ways. But I, but I remember being, being in the room with somebody and I'm not going to say it's nobody here. So (laughs) I remember being in the room with somebody, um, who didn't know that I used to play baseball and I didn't used to play baseball at, at a high level. Um, and had been exposed to some, some good coaching and some good instruction. And we were in a room, a, a group full of people and this guy began to wax eloquent on the, on the intricacies of baseball. And he was dead wrong. He, he didn't know what he was talking about. But you would have never, the people who were listening would have never known because this guy came off like he had it all together. He knew, I mean, he had, you know, he taught Ty Cobb how to hit and he taught, you know, Babe Ruth how to hit home runs. I mean, this guy was around from that point. I mean, that was the, the attitude that he took. This is exactly the kind of, I think picture that we have here is, is they're telling you how smart they are. And in doing so, in rejecting the truth of God, they're actually a bunch of fools. They're, they become fools in asserting how wise they are. Um, and I had a good chuckle when that guy was talking too, because that's exactly what happened. He was just foolish in the way that he was speaking. He didn't know what he was talking about. Now, there's an, a subtle intricacy, and let's bring it out, because I think it's very important, and I think it gives, um, I think it, it shows us the, the outcome of taking this approach to God in the Bible, taking this atheistic approach. But this word became fools means to, to make dull, uh, not acute, not sharp. But here's, here's what's interesting about this word, is it also means to cause something to lose its taste or purpose for which it exists. Let me give you an example, and you may want to write this down where else this word is used. It's used in Matthew 5.13 of salt losing its flavor. It's the same exact word. Matthew 5.13 of salt losing its flavor, losing its purpose. You know, salt is, it was used, especially um, in days gone by for a couple of reasons, to preserve food and then to season food, but season food, but if salt lost its, its seasoning capability is worthless. You know, I, I always joke with Carrie, you know, I, I'm not a big mushroom fan and she's like, well, it's just mushrooms. And, and she said, you know, they don't even have a taste. And I said, it's exactly my point. Why put them on there? Right. If they don't have a taste. Why put them on there? 
You know, we have, we, that's a joking, running conversation in our household. But, you know, if salt doesn't taste well, why even sprinkle it on there? That's a waste of time. You just save your muscles for something else. Don't even, don't even do the shaking motion. And, you know, what's interesting about this is that when people reject the knowledge of God, they assert themselves to be wise, they become fools, or they become people who have lost their sense of purpose for why they exist. And, you know, as I was looking uh, for some statistics, um, let me read this first. The, the people, through their suppression of the truth of Creator God, actually lose their purpose for living. You know, I was reading through statistics, and you know where the highest rates of suicide exist? It's among atheists. It's among atheists. Because if they don't have a purpose to exist, this is why the book of Ecclesiastes is, is quoted in Beatles songs and... <laughs> Worldly people know the book of Ecclesiastes because what's the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes? All is vanity. All is pointless. And you know what? Without God, it is pointless. That's, that's basically where Solomon got to is, yeah, without God, it is pointless. And I've been to the height and pinnacle of this, and I've tried this for pleasure, and I've done this to get satisfaction. And let me tell you something, without God, it's all pointless. It's worthless. You might as well take your life. You know, and this is, this is a, a sad thing. This is a very sad thing because as, as people begin to just become more and more confident that they understand truth, that they're wise and they begin to assert this, they actually become fools. They actually lose their purpose for living. See, and so this isn't just a, a neutral truth that we're looking at. This is a very personal truth. This is, this reminds me of a, of a, I mean, I, I didn't even know the girl, but I, I, I knew uh, a friend of mine was relaying the story and, um, he knew a family and, um, he, he knew, uh, this daughter that I'm about to tell the story about. And, and she, she got into a fight with the person she was dating. Okay. And, and, and she was an atheist. Uh, she rejected all sort of spiritual truth that had been trying to be communicated to her. Um, she had broke up with the person she was dating. Um, that person worked at a Burger King. And so she had went for one last grasp effort to restore this relationship. 17, 18 year old girl, somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, the person she was dating really embarrassed her, um, at the check. Like, what are you doing here? I told you it was over. And this kind of these things, this little girl walked out the Burger King and took her life in a, in the, in a vehicle, just sitting out there and took her life, took her own life. As a result of this, no hope, no purpose for living because her purpose for living was wrapped up in the person that she was dating or no longer dating. You know, and I often, often wondered, um, and this is why I think it's, it's very personal, because how many people do you and I pass going into and out of fast food restaurants? How, how many people do you hold the door open for? As they go, and I just, I just couldn't get that out of my mind for weeks after this happened. What if I was the guy who was holding the door open for her as she went out to her car to take her life? See, I know I'm kind of getting off this, <laughs> off the text, but it, I, we have, we have an important message and it's, and it's life changing. And as much as people uh, think that, well, I'm not going to share it with him because they just fight against it and they're really hard headed and all that. The more they continue in this thinking, the more desperate I think they become. Let's be courageous. Let's, let's pray for boldness in these situations. You just don't know who you're going to interact with 
on a daily basis. And we know where this type of thinking ends up. And so let's be courageous and let's trust the Lord. And, and as Paul said last week, let's not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. It can provide the righteousness that you need. And it's the only thing that can prevent the wrath of God from falling on us. You've got a message. We've got a message to share. And so let's keep that in mind. But as we get back to the immoral sinner, they assert themselves to be wives. And as a result, they became fools. They lost their purpose in life. And then he goes on to say, even though they knew God, verse 23, they, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so we see this, this slippery slope where this type of rejection of truth ends up leading. Verse 23, And so as they suppress their knowledge of God, um, we see from this verse that they changed the the glory of the incorruptible God. They they changed it, meaning um, they changed the former nature of something. It can also mean exchange. In fact, as we go down to verse 25, we're going to see that they actually traded it out. They took the glory of God. They traded it out for something else. Verse 25 is going to say this. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Notice it doesn't say a lie. We'll look at that as we get there. But they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And so the, the idea is that as somebody heads down this road, it gets really slippery really quick. And before long, this, this, this glorious, incorruptible God that they know about from nature and this internal revelation, all of a sudden, it's a creeping thing. This, this impersonal snake, this, uh, as Israel blew it in the wilderness, this golden calf. I was reading that the other day and Aaron says, here's the God that delivered you from Egypt. A golden calf? Aaron? Come on, man. You know, that, but, but, we, but we think like this as natural man. That's exactly, in fact, when you look at the history of polytheism, you know what you're going to see? Man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Those are the gods that polytheists worship. Uh, it reminds me of, a, of an old Chinese missionary who was teaching on Romans 1, and a Chinese man came up to him and said, there's no way Paul wrote that in the first century. And the Chinese thought, wow. He's, the missionary thought, wow, this guy's really challenging me. He said, well, why do you say that? He says, because that describes the Chinese people to a T. It had to be written by a contemporary of our culture. You know, and that's exactly what we see throughout history is this. It's this slippery slope as you reject the truth that God's given you. You move from man to birds to four-footed animals and finally creeping things. And that is clearly a slippery slope. And so we see the gutter of man, the gutterness of immoral sinner here. And so as we get into verse 24, we're going to see something interesting. Now, watch you before we read it. Um, verse 24, I want you just to notice this repeated phrase. God gave them up. God gave them over. And I want you to notice it. If you'll just follow with me for a second. Verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over All three of those phrases translate one word, the same Greek word, 
Um, and so we're going to look at this, this giving over. What does that mean? Well, first of all, I want you to notice that it doesn't say God gave up. Hallelujah <laughs> for the grace of God. God doesn't give up on anybody. There's always hope. There's always a chance that somebody would respond to the gospel. We, we hear stories, um, not all the time, but, but once in a while of 90 year old people putting their faith in Christ while in the hospital. They've had 90 years of rejection, 90 years of suppression of truth. In fact, we're, we're praying right now for a friend who's 86 years old who doesn't know Christ. And she's the, she's the sweetest lady in the world. Doesn't know Christ. So God doesn't give up on people, but he does give them over. And we'll notice in verse 24, he gives them over to uncleanness. Verse 26, he's going to give them over to vile passions. And then finally in verse 28, he's going to give them over to a debased mind. And so let's dive into verse 24 a little bit. Verse 24 reads, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And so we see this therefore right at the beginning of that verse. And this is huge here. And this is huge because when we look at the word, therefore, we want to, we want to see what it's referring to. In other words, there's a reason that caused God to act in this way, to give them over. What is that reason? Well, um, we're going to see that it's in response to what we've already read in verses 18 to 23. Okay. And if you need a catalog of reasons why God has given them up or given them over, just start back in verse 18. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19, God had manifested himself to them internally and externally by showing them the creation of the world. Um, verse 21, they knew God, but they didn't glorify him. They weren't thankful. They became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed themselves to be wise and they changed the, the glory of the incorruptible God. Therefore, based on all of that response and active rejection by mankind, God gave them up. God gave them over. Now, what does this word mean? Well, it means to deliver over or up to the power of somebody. So God does not just give up on people, but eventually as they continue down a path of rejecting him, he actually cuts them loose to their own devices. He gives them over to the very things that they're chasing and pursuing wholeheartedly in rejection of him already. Um, I like an illustration that I heard of, of um, a person holding a, a rope that's tied to a boat and the stream and current is taking it that way and, and you're holding it back so it won't get away and finally you just let go of the stream, string and you let the boat go with the current that it, it will naturally go with. And I think that's what we're talking about here when we talk about God giving them up or giving them over. Now, what does he give them up or over to? Well, he gives them up, the, the text tells us, to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This word uncleanness is just, a, uh, just generically means filth. It can mean like natural or physical filth, um, you, know, um, you know, dirty house or um, dirty kids. Um, sometimes those two go together. Um, but you, you've got this natural sense of filth or uncleanness. But here, it, you know, what I believe, because he, he brings in this concept of uh, in verse 24, um, the lust of their hearts. I think this is an internal filth. 
This is um, thoughts and actions that emanate from the believer's lust. You know, James 1, 14 and 15 tells us this is where sin originates. It, it originates in our lusts coming out of our heart. And so God has given them over to pursue sin wholeheartedly. Well, now, why would God do that? That's an interesting thought. Why would God give them over? Well, uh, we're going to see that he doesn't do it uh, immediately. He's patient. This is after 18 through 23, verse 18 through 23 of showing how they consistently have suppressed truth. I actually believe when, when you look at it, I believe it's, it's maybe even an act of grace to allow people to get to the end of themselves. You know, when did the prodigal son realize that he had a loving dad back home and that what he was doing was wrong and what he had done was sinful? When did he realize it? Was it when he was just out partying and throwing money around and blowing his inheritance and just having a grand old time and waking up hungover and, you know, all these kind of things? Was that when God brought him to the end of himself? No, it was when his resources were gone. He was laying in the mud with a bunch of pigs. And he said, man, that pig food looks good. You ever imagine like, I mean, let alone pigs. Can you imagine if you got to the point where you thought Alpo looked good? Dog food? You know, liquid dog food, that's the most disgusting thing on earth. And, and yet here, this guy is lying in the slop wanting to, to share a meal with the pigs. You can lose a hand trying to share a meal with pigs too. They're a little aggressive. But the, the point is this, I think that in some ways, this is an act of grace of God allowing somebody to get to the end of themselves, to suffer the natural consequences of sin. And I believe in some small way, um, abandonment is a revelation of God's wrath, abandoning them to what they want to do anyway for their own good. And so um, I believe that's one of the things that we're talking about here. You know, the sad thing about lust, um, and I, this is lust for anything, but I, but I just think of lust in general. And I think um, the use of this word and its association with some other sexual sin seems to maybe that they put those two together a lot. Um, in the scriptures, but you know, the sad thing about lust is it's so deceptive. You have to have this thing because you need it. And then when you get it, it doesn't meet those needs, does it? And then you, and then you crave more or you crave something different. And then when you get it, I, the best illustration of that for me is when I was a kid uh, on Christmas, Christmas was the best day of my life. And it was the worst day of my life. And you know what the worst part of it was when my last present was open. Man, what a, what a, a gut punch that was every year. How discouraging that was. But I, the, the lead up was, was excellent because that's what I needed. I needed those presents under the tree. The problem was, is I, I needed just one more after that last one got open. And then I would have needed just one more and just one more. And there's no, there's no end in sight. That's the sad thing about lust. And so as, as, these sinners are turned over to their own uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. I believe God is saying, cut them loose and nope, I can't meet my need there. 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 And eventually maybe it'll dawn on them. Oh, he can meet my need. This, this one who created me can meet all my needs. And, you know, I, th- I believe that's what we're, we're looking at here. It's also interesting because in, in verse 24, he says this, that 
he gives them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. And then this next phrase, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. The very thing you think lust is going to do is to treat your body right, to provide satisfaction, to provide pleasure. Whatever that, that lust is, it's the, it does the exact opposite. It brings dishonor, disglory, unglory. I don't know what the word is. No glory to your body. It brings no satisfaction. And it's interesting because as we relate sexual sin and we think of sexual sin, we've got 1 Corinthians 6 that says that any sin that you commit is, is outside the body. Sexual sin, you sin against your own body. See, there, the Bible fits together like a glove. I mean, this is all talking about the same thing. And so um, we see this. And then finally, um, finally, we're going to close there. How about that? And we'll, we'll pick up... Uh, <laughs> We'll pick up in the, uh, we're going to celebrate Christmas next week. So we're going to get out of Romans one for Christmas. And, um, my family and I will be traveling on January 1st and we'll have, um, Bill filling in that day. And then we'll be back on January 8th. We'll get back down, uh, into the gutter of Romans one and just continue this thought. And then we'll look at the other two, uh, instances where God gives, gives them up as this text says. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for. Um, your word, it's, uh, you know, a, a heavy message in, in some ways this morning, Lord, um, because of the seriousness of, uh, of what happens when people reject your truth and, um, the, the potential outcomes of that. And so, uh, Lord, our, our desire is just to be, um, bold and, and, um, and to take opportunities that you give us. Uh, Lord, but to also understand just in a in an in-depth way that, that nobody's good enough to get to heaven. That's why this gospel message is so important. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, we know from uh, what you're teaching us here that, that everybody needs your righteousness, no matter what type of sinner they are. Uh, the, the broad road still leads to the same place. And so uh, we pray you just, uh, just continue to sink uh, this truth into our thinking. Um, Lord, we didn't, uh, talk much about Jesus Christ this morning, but, um, we know that this is in preparation to see the, our need for him. Um, but Lord, we're just grateful for him. May you occupy us with, with him and our thinking. Uh, we're grateful that he took care of the issue, uh, that we're reading about right now, that he died for our sins and he rose again. Uh, and we can be saved simply by believing in him. So Lord, we're grateful for that. We celebrate that, uh, really specifically and specially this time of year as we think about, uh, your your first advent, you're coming in the likeness of of human form, as Philippians two says. And so, uh, Lord, we just desire to think uh, often uh, of Jesus Christ in our week, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.